Chapter 5 of Behind the Beyond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick Painter. Behind the Beyond by Stephen Leacock. Chapter 5 Familiar Incidents My Unknown Friend. He stepped into the smoking compartment of the Pullman, where I was sitting alone. He had on a long fur-lined coat, and he carried a fifty-dollar suitcase that he put down on the seat. Then he saw me. Well, well, he said, and recognition broke out all over his face like morning sunlight. Well, well, I repeated. By Jove! he said, shaking hands vigorously. Who'd have thought of seeing you? Who indeed, I thought to myself. He looked at me more closely. You haven't changed a bit, he said. Neither have you, I said heartily. You may be a little stouter, he went on critically. Yes, I said, a little. But you're stouter yourself. This, of course, would help to explain away any undue stoutness on my part. No, I continued boldly and firmly, you look just about the same as ever. And all the time I was wondering who he was. I didn't know him from Adam. I couldn't recall him a bit. I don't mean that my memory is weak. On the contrary, it is singularly tenacious. True. I find it very hard to remember people's names. Very often, too, it is hard for me to recall a face, and frequently I fail to recall a person's appearance, and of course clothes are a thing one doesn't notice. But apart from these details, I never forget anybody, and I am proud of it. But when it does happen that a name or face escapes me, I never lose my presence of mind. I know just how to deal with the situation. It only needs coolness and intellect, and it all comes right. My friend sat down. It's a long time since we met, he said. A long time, I repeated with something of a note of sadness. I wanted him to feel that I, too, had suffered from it. But it has gone very quickly. Like a flash, I assented cheerfully. Strange, he said, how life goes on and we lose track of people and things alter. I often think about it. I sometimes wonder, he continued, where all the old gang are gone to. So do I, I said. In fact, I was wondering about it at the very moment. I always find in circumstances like these that a man begins sooner or later to talk of the old gang, or the boys, or the crowd. That's where the opportunity comes to gather who he is. Do you ever go back to the old place? he asked. Never, I said firmly and flatly. This had to be absolute. I felt that once and for all the old place must be ruled out of the discussion till I could discover where it was.
No, he went on. I suppose you'd hardly care to. Not now, I said very gently. I understand. I beg your pardon, he said, and there was silence for a few moments. So far, I had scored the first point. There was evidently an old place somewhere to which I would hardly care to go. That was something to build on. Presently, he began again. Yes, he said. I sometimes meet some of the old boys, and they begin to talk of you and wonder what you're doing. Poor things, I thought, but I didn't say it. I knew it was time now to make a bold stroke, so I used the method that I always employ. I struck in with great animation. Say, I said, where's Billy? Do you ever hear anything of Billy now? This is really a very safe line. Every old gang has a Billy in it. Yes, said my friend. Sure, Billy is ranching out in Montana. I saw him in Chicago last spring. Weighed about two hundred pounds. You wouldn't know him. No, I certainly wouldn't, I murmured to myself. And where's Pete? I said. This was safe ground. There is always a Pete. You mean Billy's brother, he said. Yes, yes, Billy's brother Pete. I often think of him. Oh, answered the unknown man. Old Pete's quite changed. Settled down altogether. Here he began to chuckle. Why, Pete's married. I started to laugh, too. Under these circumstances, it is always supposed to be very funny if a man has got married. The notion of old Peter, whoever he is, being married is presumed to be simply killing. I kept on chuckling away quietly at the mere idea of it. I was hoping that I might manage to keep on laughing till the train stopped. I had only fifty miles more to go. It's not hard to laugh for fifty miles, if you know how. But my friend wouldn't be content with it. I often meant to write to you he said, his voice falling to a confidential tone, especially when I heard of your loss. I remained quiet. What had I lost? Was it money? And if so, how much? And why had I lost it? I wondered if it had ruined me, or only partly ruined me. One can never get over a loss like that, he continued solemnly. Evidently, I was plumb ruined. But I said nothing and remained under cover, waiting to draw his fire. Yes, the man went on, death is always sad. Death! Now oh, that was it, was it? I almost hiccuffed with joy. That was easy. Handling a case of death in these conversations is simplicity itself. One has only to sit quiet and wait to find out who is dead. Yes, I murmured, very sad. But it has its other side, too. Very true, especially, of course, at that age. As you say, at that age, and after such a life. Strong and bright to the last, I suppose, he continued very sympathetically. 
Yes, I said, falling on sure ground, able to sit up in bed and smoke within a few days of the end. What? he said, perplexed. Did your grandmother, my grandmother, that was it, was it? Pardon me, I said, provoked at my own stupidity. When I say smoked, I mean able to sit up and be smoked too, a habit she had uh, being read to and being smoked to, only thing that seemed to compose her. As I said this, I could hear the rattle and clatter of the train running past the semaphores and switch points and slacking to a stop. My friend looked quickly out of the window. His face was agitated. Great heavens, he said. That's the junction. I've missed my stop. I should have got out at the last station. Say, porter, he called into the alleyway. How long do we stop here? Just two minutes, sir, called a voice back. She's late now. She's making up time. My friend had hopped up now and had pulled out a bunch of keys and was fumbling at the lock of the suitcase. I'll have to wire back or something, he gasped. Confound this lock. My money's in the suitcase. My one fear now was that he would fail to get off. Here, I said, pulling some money out of my pocket. Don't bother with the lock. Here's money. Thanks, he said, grabbing the roll of money out of my hand. In his excitement, he took all that I had. I'll just have time. He sprang from the train. I saw him through the window, moving toward the waiting room. He didn't seem to be going very fast. I waited. The porters were calling, All aboard! All aboard! There was a clang of a bell, a hiss of steam, and in a second the train was off. Idiot, I thought. He's missed it. And there was his fifty-dollar suitcase lying on the seat. I waited, looking out of the window and wondering who the man was anyway. Then, presently, I heard the porter's voice again. He evidently was guiding someone through the car. I looked all through the car for it, sir, he was saying. I left it in the seat in the car there behind my wife, said the angry voice of a stranger, a well-dressed man who put his head into the door of the compartment. Then his face, too, beamed all at once with recognition. But it was not for me. It was for the fifty-dollar valise. Ah, there it is, he cried, seizing it and carrying it off. I sank back in dismay. The old gang. Pete's marriage. My grandmother's death. Great heavens! And my money! I saw it all. The other man was making talk, too, and making it with a purpose. Stung. And next time that I fall into talk with a casual stranger in a car, I shall not try to be quite so extraordinarily clever. End of chapter 5